This is God's word. It is his eternal word. It is always true. It can never be broken. Let us give attention to it. Exodus chapter 9, verses 13 to 17. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself, against my people, and will not let them go. This is God's word. You may be seated. I'm not sure if I did, but if I didn't, I meant to introduce myself at the beginning. My name is Phil Henry. My family and I attend here. I'm a pastor in the PCA and am pursuing a call to church planting. And Pastor Dennis is with the the youth of the church skiing, suffering for the Lord. (laughs) And so he asked me to fill in for him today, and I'm happy to do so. Thank you for for the privilege of speaking to you and for preaching. I value that greatly. The book of Exodus tells the story of how God delivers his ancient people from bondage in Egypt. The story starts on a dramatic note. There is a decree to slaughter all the baby boys. And one child is given up for adoption to avoid that. Moses on a basket on the Nile. And as luck would have it, who would you think picks him up but the wife of Pharaoh himself? And he's raised in her house as the son of Pharaoh. But in a classic riches to rags story, Moses is called to give all that up, all that education, all that privilege, all that power, all that wealth, to become the humble and yet mighty deliverer of God's people. Deliverance wouldn't come for another 40 years, but when it did come, when it did come, it came with high drama. And the drama began with the ten plagues, where a righteous God displays his jealousy for his name and for his people. The plagues coming in a period of relative peace in the history of ancient Egypt are are an amazingly 
destructive, even devastating catastrophe for the entire nation of Egypt. But what is remarkable about the plagues, I think, more than the destruction that they wreak on the economy and on the morale of a people, is the reason why the plagues were sent. That's what I think is amazing. So we're going to consider those reasons this morning. Why did God send the plagues to Egypt? And the reasons form the title for my message this morning, which is His Name, His People. We're going to look at each one of those reasons in turn and then consider some implications. So let's start then with His Name. His Name. God sent the plagues on the Egyptians, first of all, because of His Name. Historians have observed that Egypt was a polytheistic society that worshipped over 80 gods. We've got them beat, don't we? They considered sacred the lion, the ox, the ram, the wolf, the dog, the cat, the ibis, the vulture, the falcon, the hippo, the crocodile, the cobra, the dolphin, different fish, trees, and even small animals, including the frog, the scarab, and the locust. In addition, there were also human gods, men in the prime of their life, each with a different name. Even Pharaoh himself was considered a god. Always the son of Amon-Ra, ruling not merely by divine right, but by divine birth. And they think that's partly why it explains the long reign of the pharaohs. No one would dare question that this was God. But again and again, we read in Exodus about how God was intent on displaying His glory through this context to the world. Scholars tell us that the plagues constituted something like a heavyweight title match between God in the one corner and whatever Egyptian God dared to try to fight God in the other corner. In fact, studies have shown that each plague, in a sense, directly confronts one Egyptian deity after another. I think that's so cool. And in each case, the world has shown that the, that the Lord God of the Hebrews, as we read in our text, is the one true God. He will not share that title with anyone else. You can see that specifically in our text in verse 14. Look with me, please. God says through Moses, This time I will send all my plagues on you, yourself, and on your servants, and on your people. Why? So that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Now, before a boxing match, there's typically trash talk, right? And most often, that is based on hot air. I mean, obviously, somebody's going to win. But if anybody had a right to brag before a fight, it would be God, because he's going to win. And that's what he does here. He boasts in his own name, because he is jealous for his own name. He says something similar in verse 16. Look again at our text. But for this purpose, I have raised you up 
to show you my power. To show you my power. My power. Why? So that my name, my name, may be proclaimed in all the earth. This is powerful stuff. And it isn't just here. Throughout the entire account of the plagues in Egypt, even beyond it, into the crossing of the Red Sea, the whole passage, the whole section is all about God's glorious name. In fact, you might not be too surprised to find out that Exodus and the plagues are just a tiny little mirror of the story of the whole Bible. That's what the book's about. It's about God's name and the glory of God's name. God is the star of the show. It's His glory. It's His honor. It's His majesty, which is on center stage. It's His beauty, which is on display. And for time's sake, I can only give you one example, but there are literally dozens of examples like these. From Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar looks out over Babylon and says, Is this not the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and, by, and for the glory of my majesty? Hint, run for cover. <laughs> Bad idea, Neb. What God does in response to that is he sends him out into the wilderness to crawl on all fours and to eat food like the animals and to foam at the mouth until what? Until he recognizes that God alone is to be worshipped. That's the message of Scripture. God is jealous. He loves his name. I was reminded when I was thinking about this of a bumper sticker that I once saw. And the bumper sticker went like this. Nietzsche, quote, God is dead. God, quote, Nietzsche's dead. (laughs) God always gets the last word. For all of our pomp and splendor, for all of our boasting and trash-talking, in the end, who gets the final say? It's the Lord. And that's what we see in the plagues, is that Pharaoh talks a tough game, but when it comes down to it, he loses every time. No matter what God is thrust into the ring to do battle with Jehovah Almighty, that God goes down one after another. God loves his name. We see second that God sends the plagues on the Egyptians not only because of his jealousy for his name, but also because of his people. This is the second phrase in my title, his people, his name, his people. What's amazing about the ten plagues is that not only does he love his own name, and therefore is motivated to move in on the Egyptians to destroy their gods one after another, and in result, the whole society. But he also sends the plagues because he loves his people. Think about it. Was Egypt the only non-God-worshipping, 
non-Jehovah Almighty, the Lord of hosts, worshiping society in the ancient world? Were they the only idolaters in the ancient world? I mean, why didn't God send plagues on all the society, on every community, on every nation? The only answer I can come up with is that Egypt not only had all these idols, but they were oppressing God's people. I think it makes sense that the reason Egypt was the special target of his jealous love for his name is because Egypt was oppressing the other target of his special love, which is his people. Egypt had afflicted those whom God has called his own son, his firstborn. Egypt had afflicted God's people. We see this in our text. Look at verse 17. Immediately after explaining to Pharaoh the reason that that he has been raised up so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth, verse 16, God says in verse 17, Pharaoh, you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. His name, his people, they go hand in hand. In fact, I would venture to say that God loves his people as much as he loves his name. That the reason the plagues are sent on Egypt is not just because of his own jealousy for his own reputation and his own honor in the world as God, but it's because he loves his people. I think the problem wasn't just that Pharaoh was worshiping the wrong God. The problem is that in his idolatry, Pharaoh was opposing the people of God's own possession. We see this in the very beginning of Exodus when it isn't the idolatry of the Egyptians which comes to the forefront, but rather the bondage and the oppression of his people which reaches the ears and the heart of God in Exodus 2. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery reached the ears of God And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people, and God knew. I've used this word jealous several times already this morning, and I think it bears some explaining. I don't think we understand jealous love in our culture today very well. We don't get the passionate and pure protecting care of a husband for his wife, typically. First of all, most husbands today are not protective and pure towards their wives. Second of all, if there is any jealousy at all, it's that selfish, insecure kind, not the claiming of a sacred and solemn pledge that God makes when in the Bible his name is given as jealous. The jealousy we hear, that we experience, relates to the irrational fear of a spouse feeling threatened, unnecessarily so, by someone else. You know, like the man who makes an embarrassing scene at a party because his wife accepts a friendly and innocent invitation to dance with an old friend. Or a woman overwhelmed with jealousy because her husband's company appoints a female boss. God's jealousy is not like this. 
It's not irrational. In fact, it's the opposite. God's jealousy is supremely rational. It is the sacred and appropriate anger of a husband when someone else competes for the heart of his wife or when her heart wanders away to other lovers. Because not only is Israel described as God's son, Israel is described as God's bride. It's not God's insecurity that causes him to be jealous. Instead, as John Piper has explained it, God is jealous like a powerful and merciful king who takes a peasant girl from a life of shame, forgives her, marries her, and gives her not the chores of a slave, but the privileges of a queen. God sends his plagues on Egypt out of jealousy for his people, not because he's weak. It is because he is strong. It is because God is love that he afflicts the Egyptians. His love refuses to allow his honor and mercy as shown to his people to be stained by any competitor. Think about it this way. It isn't that God's jealousy is twisted. It's Pharaoh's jealousy that's twisted. God is claiming what is rightfully his. Pharaoh is the one who is insecure. Pharaoh is the one who can't handle it. Pharaoh is the one who has placed an inappropriate claim on something that doesn't belong to him. He has to learn that God is not only jealous for his name, but he's jealous for his people. God's name, God's people. Let's look at some practical implications of these two truths. First of all, I believe this is a call to faith. As I was preparing this message, it occurred to me that some of you might be thinking, you know, that is a great story for Sunday school or vacation Bible school. But for a sophisticated, university-educated, intelligent, radio-listening, newspaper-reading, 21st-century modern individual like me, I don't have any need for that. I think the first implication here is that we must believe this text. This is not a myth. This is the truth of history that God in history afflicted not once, but ten times supernaturally the people of Egypt for the purpose of redeeming his own people. In fact, history records, history actually records that there is a mysterious death of Pharaoh's son. We have that in the historical record. What's more, the plagues are not a mere product of an Old Testament theology. No, this God is the God of the New Testament as well. We read in Hebrews, in fact, that, that the plagues in some senses are just a prelude to what's coming. That if God had reason to be jealous for his name and his people then, how much more now with the revelation of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, his son. And there will be a display of plagues in the end, in the last day, for which these plagues are like a, just a, a warm-up act. 
We need to believe this text. We need to trust that God is speaking in this text. I think a second implication, and perhaps more personal for you, is that God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. He still is jealous for His people. He went to such lengths, to such cost, to rescue His people out of bondage. My friends, what He did in Egypt to deliver them from oppression is a picture of what He has done in Jesus Christ. That in fact, the bondage that they faced from Pharaoh was nothing compared to the bondage that we face from our sin from ourselves, from the world, and the enemy of our souls himself, the devil. And that at great cost to himself, even the cost of his own son, he lived a life that we could never live. He died a death that we could never endure. For us, he loves us, my friends. He loves you. Jesus loves me. This I know. We need to believe that. And a third implication, which I think flows from this, not only does God love you, God has not forgotten you. Yes, it feels like bondage. In fact, scholars tell us that the New Testament equivalent to slavery is a job. I knew that. God has not forgotten your toil. He has not forgotten your strife. He has not forgotten your labor, your pain, your anguish, your loneliness, your disappointment, your discouragement, your fear. He knows and he is aware. Yea, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I am with you. If God remembered his people in their bondage in these ancient days, doesn't he remember you in your difficulty now? Has his steadfast love finally ceased? Did the flicker of the flame of his covenant mercy once and for all go out? No. It is alive and well. In fact, it's not a flame. It's a bonfire because Jesus is alive today testifying to the love of God for his people and to his remembrance. Jesus lives to intercede for you. Intercede today for today's needs, not just for the needs of, of, of a distant age. We must trust him. We must cry out to him. We must follow him, even when we feel abandoned, even when we are in bondage, even when we sense we are in exile, even when we are helpless, hopeless, and broken. Even when the whole world is opposed, we must put our faith in Jesus Christ, whose death and resurrection certifies God remembers. God is not forgotten. I think the key to grasping this profound truth is realizing that he died for me. His death was not an abstract, general death for sin and brokenness in general. He died for specific sinners for specific broken people. He died for my sin and my brokenness. 
And that's why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? He remembers. I think a fourth implication is God is jealous. I said he loves you, and that feels good. But now I'm saying he's jealous for you. And that doesn't feel as good. It doesn't feel as good because to me it feels a little scarier, a little edgier, a little riskier, a little more dangerous. God is jealous. God is jealous for you. He wants not some of you, all of you, your whole person. Your thoughts, he wants them. Your feelings, he wants them. Your behavior, your desires, your passions, your dreams, he wants them all. Look at how much he paid to liberate you. Why do we continue in unbelief, in doubt, in debauchery, in idolatry, in pride, in fear. Why? Why do we do that? He is jealous. And the jealous God is bringing us this message today to remind us that He has not changed. I think jealousy is a warning to us. He will have the final word, won't He? He's going to have the final word. Have you ever regretted being a Christian? Be honest. It's hard. Doesn't it seem easier sometimes to live a life of unbelief, carefree, no worry about your sins, do whatever you want, never have a guilty conscience? Wouldn't that be great? Think about it. Think about it. Read Psalm 73. David, or Asaph there, I guess it is, when he was looking at the prosperity of the wicked, you know what brought him to his senses? He came to worship. He came to worship, and then he remembered their destiny. You know, I think we secularize our life experiences far too much. We get lost in something that Pascal called the... the he didn't call it this, but it's like the tyranny of the urgent. You know what I'm talking about? What Pascal said is that we make an eternity out of nothing and nothing out of an eternity. We need some sanctified imagination, don't we? We need to be able to go beyond the confines of our circumstances, of our experiences, of our troubles, and see the vast story that is being played out on the world stage, of which we are a very small part and that God is jealous for us to play that part. But this jealousy is not just a, uh, a warning, it's also a comfort. Think about it, since God is jealous for the honor of His name, He ain't going to let you go. If I may paraphrase, we've talked about boxing, you can run, but you can't hide. Where can I go from your spirit? 
Where can I flee from your presence? David isn't just reflecting abstractly on the omnipresence of God in some systematic theological sense. David isn't quite sure if he's happy or sad about this. He's wondering if if he necessarily wants this close and covenant-keeping God with him. And then as if he, he teaches himself as he prays us, he says, If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand, the hand of power, holds me fast. He will jealously guard you. He is watching over you. He is protecting you from yourself and from your enemies. So great is his love for his name and you, his child who bears his name, that we believe that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And that's the great connection. You see, if we did not bear his name, which we get in Jesus, who is God, if we are not Christians, servants of Christ, then we have no hope. But we are Christians. We are his servant. And so we have hope that God loves his name. And he loves his people. And I'm going to end finally with this implication. I believe this teaches us we have a mission. We have a mission. And you say, where do you get that in the text? Shall we? Let my people go so that they may serve me. The reason God is jealous for His name and the reason He is jealous for His people is because He has a mission and you're a part of it. You are a part of God's mission in this world. You are a part of His work on this planet to do your part in building His kingdom. Our mission is like theirs. It pertains to serving God, both in worship and in work. It pertains to being faithful to Him, to speak about Him, to give honor to Him. And you know what I love about this passage in Exodus, this this whole account of the plagues? As they were released to serve God, they were released as a mixed multitude. Do you know what I mean by that? It wasn't just Hebrews who went out to worship God. There were a whole lot of Egyptians that went out to worship God with them. So that what we see in the Exodus is a tiny picture of the mission of the gospel, which is that every tribe and every tongue and every nation shall serve the Lord of hosts. And we have a part to play in that. Time is short. We must have done with lesser things. We must remember that he is jealous for his name and that he is jealous for his people. We must get to work. We have been released from bondage. Pharaoh is no longer holding us. What are we waiting for? Let's go. Let's serve God. Amen. Father, thank you for this word of encouragement, of exhortation. We pray that your name would be as precious to us as it is to you. We pray that your people 
would be as precious to us as it is to you. And not just the ones that we see and whose names are on a roll, but as Jesus was so focused on the lost, the broken, the outcast, Lord, may we have a heart, not for the 99, but for the one, the one who went astray. Lord, we pray that this mission would be burned into our hearts as we seek to gather and do our part in gathering that multi-ethnic, multinational, multilingual, international people of God until you return. In Jesus' name, amen.